Okay, welcome to the Crown Council's Mentor of the Month. This is Stuart Anderson. I'm joined by Barbara Freet from Human Resource Advisors. Welcome, Barbara. Hi, Stuart. We're so grateful to have you and to have your uh, years of experience and expertise with us. Uh, the name of, of what Barbara wants to present today is very catchy and good. Show, show me the money. It's uh, a real <laughs> shout out to uh, Tom Cruise and his great uh, movie back there in the 1990s. So show me the money. Compensation paid correctly. Uh, and, and Barbara's kind of crafted this from watching the email network and watching uh, real problems that Crown Council members have had over the years, uh, for which I'm, I'm very grateful. It's going to be a fun solution to learn from. So um, Barbara, if, if you want to take it away, I'll jump in with questions and, and, and kind of bring my two cents in. But this is really your time to shine. Uh, with this great topic. So whenever you're ready. Thanks, Stuart. You know, compensation is always kind of top of mind of everybody, whether you're paying it or receiving it or both. And over the years, I've been working with dentists since 1996. And I think dentists have relied mostly on how other dentists that they know pay their teams or whatever materials they read from their associations, what their accountant tells them, and mostly the kind of good ideas that seem logical and workable to them. It's very understandable, but often it's incorrect. In fact, I have a saying, one of these days I'll make a t-shirt out of it. There's no relationship between common sense and employment law. <laughs> so <laughs> that's a fact. As it's true on so many fronts, things have changed and they change certainly in California they change practically minute by minute but particularly over the last five years on a federal level and on a state level in the area of compensation for example there has always been a federal minimum wage and a lot of states have used the federal minimum wage only or they have their own state minimum wage now a lot of cities in the United States have their own minimum wage rate and they increase it maybe the 1st of January of every year or the 1st of July. So for some of our doctors that have multiple locations, they may be paying different wages in, in different locations, which creates mayhem, of course. So what about, for example, paying, it's a long-standing tradition in dentistry for, um, to pay hygienists and associates, for example, on a per diem basis. Can you still do that? Um, so how are people going to keep up with all of these laws? And and that's kind of where we come in. We, we really try to simplify and make it, make it easier for our, our dentist clients nationwide. But there's three areas, I think, where dentists go in the wrong direction. As I mentioned, the way it's always been done, as it relates to employees versus independent contractors. A lot has been in the news about this, and it used to be that a person could say, I want to be an independent contractor, and the employer would say, oh, that's fabulous because that saves me unemployment taxes. It isn't up to the person anymore, and in fact, the laws have gotten much stricter because it is all about taxes. So there are very few times in dentistry where a person can be an independent contractor legally these days. And they pretty much, we'll talk more about it, but they pretty much have to have their own business. Okay. The second thing is 
not understanding the importance of classifications as exempt and non-exempt. And this is part of federal law and state law. Exempt means exempt from wage and hour law, and non-exempt means not exempt. So we'll talk more about that. And the third thing I want to talk about today is how to pay associates correctly. This comes up on the email network all the time about, you know, how are you paying your associates? What are the good ways to pay them? And I really want to address that as well. So those are the three topics. Great. Let's do it. Okay. So what is an independent contractor? According to the IRS, the U.S. Department of Labor, and other federal and state governing bodies, there has been these tests that the IRS has published and the 20-point test, the this test, the that test, to determine if a person can actually be considered an independent contractor. And they keep changing these tests and they keep making them more complicated. So, <laughs> so, so is there, if it's coming from the government, is there a, is there a simple way? or I mean, how do we determine it? Maybe, maybe there's a simple way. That's my, that's my definitive answer. Um, so what I'm going to say next can't be applied to California. California should probably just become its own country, but never mind that part. The IRS uses two tests that all the rest of the states can consider. One is called the reasonable basis test. And that says that somebody could be considered an independent contractor if there's quote, a long-standing and recognized practice in the industry of treating similar workers as non-employees. So this might apply to part-time dentists and associates, but no longer to hygienists, even if they work in more than one office, unless they actually own their own business. So the reasonable basis test is one test. The second one is called the common law test. And this test measures the degree of control that an employer has over the person. So it might be behavioral control, how the person does the job, financial control, including whether the independent contractor can experience a profit or a loss, and, and maybe what expenses are reimbursed. And it's, this one is kind of focused on how the relationship actually works. So a lot of times people will tell me that they have an independent contractor, but there's no contract. Mm. And they have the person keeping time records and other indicators that this is not an independent contractor. You have to buy its very nature, have a contract with somebody. The person has to invoice you and you have agreed upon fees and you can't manage the person's work. The thing that is a difficulty with dentists um, who come in, for example, like associates or substitute dentist is they're using the this dentist equipment that's kind of how it works so they're not using their own equipment and so these two tests are the two tests in the other states that dentists really need to look up and rely on but if they're going to have an independent contractor they need to have a contract and they need to be invoiced mm. it's really Stuart all about the taxes it's all about the money the IRS doesn't like the fact that independent contractors can decide how much tax they want to pay, basically. So that's that's kind of the bottom line on this. They're, that's why they're doing away with a lot of the 
the loopholes really um, as far as independent contractors are concerned. Very good. And, and, and correct me if I'm wrong, but don't independent contractors actually have to pay more taxes uh, than employees? They're supposed to, yes. They have to pay self-employment tax, which consists of Social Security and Medicare taxes as well as income tax. Usually, these last two are paid by the employer, but independent contractors are considered self-employed people. Okay. So that's why they, they actually, yes, they do pay more taxes. And you said, um, you said that uh, this doesn't apply to California. So what, what does apply? Well, in California, the legislature is going after Uber and Lyft and similar kinds of gig economy uh, businesses. And because Uber and Lyft consider drivers as independent contractors, and they have since the businesses began. They drive their own cars. They decide their own work hours. They work or not as they wish. Our legislature wants the drivers to, quote, have all the benefits and protections of employees, whether they want them or not. Mm. And so we just passed AB5, which is even stricter than the law that was passed last year, which is known as the Dynamex case, and it's, they, it has the ABC test. And it really narrows down uh, who can think of themselves as an independent contractor. I think I read that Uber's legal team has said, great, pass all the laws you want. We're not going to follow any of them. And mm. they're just saving money for a war chest to be sued. Mm. So in California, it's like an armed camp. But fortunately, um, the, the issue for California dentists is generally – hire people as temporary employees and just stay away from this whole mess. There are some exempt industry, industries in AB5. One of them is dentistry, but I don't know how this is going to come out in the wash. Whenever the legislature in any state or even our, our country passes a law, it's defined in the courts. So if you, as a, if a dentist wants to know more about California law on this subject, I'm happy to, to give them more information, um, or they can just read up on AB5, okay. uh, but that's probably good enough for the California law. It's okay. much stricter. <laughs> okay, good. So let's, let's talk about the second really important issue, and that's whether or not employees are exempt or non-exempt. There was a dental management guy about 10 years ago who went around telling dentists, just pay everybody on a salary basis and that'll solve all your problems. Mm. And so I kept running around after him saying, no, no, don't do that. That will not solve your problems. I don't think he's even existing anymore. So I think that fortunately will not happen again. But <laughs> it's, it, it's much more complicated than how you pay your employees. Okay. Um, and so is the issue about paying them hourly or, or salary? I mean, what is the, I mean, what is it? What, what's the, what's the difference? What's the problem? Well, how you pay a person certainly is part of the, of the issue, but there's some more to it. So many states follow the federal fair labor standards act, the FLSA, which has been around since 1937. It's the granddaddy of wage and hour law. And it gets updated from time to time. And now it's about to be updated as of January 1st, 2020. And 
what is critical about this is that it, this law defines what is exempt and what is uh, what positions are exempt and what positions are non-exempt. So let's let's also talk about states. There's a number of states that have their own wage and hour law, and so if anybody wants to know what those are, I'm certainly happy to tell them. But a lot of states also follow the FLSA, which is really great. So let's talk about kind of the basic rules. So there's three things that you have to look at when you're deciding if a position, so not a person, but a position is exempt from wage and hour law or not exempt. First, how much independent judgment does this person have? So really, the only people who use independent judgment in a dental office are going to be the dentist, the associate, and maybe a practice administrator or an office manager if he or she really runs the practice. Everybody else, the dental assistants, hygiene, front, they're all following guidelines. So they can decide things, like if you have a bookkeeper, she can decide whether to pay this bill on this date or that date, but you have to have people who are using independent judgment on matters of significance. And bookkeepers are always non-exempt. The second thing is, how do the duties of the position meet the standards for what is called the duties test? So there are certain kinds of duties that are considered exempt. They're upper-level duties. So in, in addition to independent judgment, what does this position actually do? And the third is, is this, the exempt people are always paid on a salary basis. And does it meet what's called the salary threshold? So that's the third thing. First is independent judgment. Second is the duties test. And the third is the salary threshold. So the thing that makes it kind of simple to think about is, Non-exempt people are paid based on the hours they work. Exempt people are paid based on the job they do, not the hours they work. Mm. So exempt people are paid a salary that is averaged over all the pay periods. So if I'm going to pay you 60000 a year, I divide 60000 by whether I'm paying you on a semi-monthly basis by 24 or bi-weekly basis by 26 and you're going to get that same amount Stuart every single pay period because it isn't based on the hours you work it's an average non-exempt people are paid based on the hours they work so it's easier to pay them on an hourly basis so if you pay anybody on an hourly basis they are non-exempt period because they're being paid based on the hours they work But if you pay people on a salary basis, that does not make them exempt. They are probably non-exempt salaried people. So the salary, the wage, the way you pay the wages is not the determining factor. So there's, there's several recognized exemptions nationally, and this is true for all states and nationally. Three of them apply to dentistry. The professional exemption, which applies to dentists, The executive exemption, which applies to people that are uh, running the practice. So some large practices may have a CEO or a CFO, 
and they have upper-level executive decision-making ability. And the third one is the administrative exemption, which may apply to an office manager or a practice administrator. And these, if so again, they have to still, the position still has to meet the duties test and the independent judgment test. So let's talk for a minute about the salary threshold. Because for the first time in many years, the salary threshold is going up nationally. People have seen this in the news, I think. For years and years, it's been $23,660 per year is the lowest that an exempt person can be paid. As of January 2020, that threshold is going up to $35,568 per year. So why is that important? Because if your state follows the FLSA, like lots of states do, and you have a practice administrator, an office manager who isn't making 35568 and you're considering that person to be exempt, you have to give them a raise okay. or they won't meet that salary thre threshold. You know, you keep saying exempt, um, Barbara. What are they exempt from? What does that mean? Good question. They are exempt from wage and hour law. It doesn't apply to them. So a lot of wage and hour law has to do with how you track time, whether you can round up or down if somebody comes in three minutes late, what time people have to take their lunches, all that stuff. And all of that applies to non-exempt people and not exempt people. So they are exempt from wage and hour law. Got it. And, and, and what does that mean on a practical basis? I mean, if, if wage and hour law uh, doesn't apply, then what does? So that's a good question too. Exempt team members, as we said, are paid based on the job they do. So it, you decide the value of the job and they're paid the same amount every pay period. And there's rules about uh, how, how they're paid. So if they work any time during a work week, they're paid for the whole week. Things like that. And they aren't docked if they leave early, for example. It's not that you can't require exempt people to come in at a certain time and they can leave at a certain time. But if they leave early for a doctor's appointment or something, you can't dock them. It's not about the hours they work. But on the other hand, non-exempt employees are not exempt from wage and hour law. So as we said, they're paid based on the hours that they work. They're paid overtime and they have to keep time records. Mm. Very good. And, and I mean, so, so if I'm a doctor and I want to make everything just real simple, can I just pay everybody on a salary and just be done with all the timekeeping and overtimes and, and all of that? Unfortunately, no. <laughs> um, positions have to qualify as exempt for the reasons that I mentioned above. They have to qualify. And in a dental office, the only positions that qualify are dentists and office managers or practice administrators. Everybody else, hygienists, front, doesn't matter what they do, they they do not have, uh, they don't meet the duties test, and they don't usually use enough independent judgment to qualify. Okay. Um, kind of a, a, a change here, but what happens when people are paid on like a, a per diem basis? That's That's got to be common. 
it's been common for years in dentistry. And um, the theory behind per diem is, of course, everybody knows, is like a hygienist comes in and you say, well, um, I expect you to see eight patients a day and I'm going to pay you 450 a day. And, you know, and then if a patient is a no-show, then maybe the hygienist will call people or, or use that time before the next patient arrives. The problem is that even though that's one of those industry-specific things that have been common, the hygienists are non-exempt employees. They have to be paid based on the hours they work. And you say, well, she is being paid for the hours she works. She's getting this flat amount, but she isn't keeping time records. Most of the time, now some dentists are, are getting smart on this point, and they have their hygienist clock in, clock out for lunch, clock back in, etc. I went through a very sad, um, in California, a very sad lawsuit with a dentist who had two hygienists that she paid on a per diem basis, and they never kept time records, of course. I shouldn't say of course, but they never kept time records. And one of them turned around and sued her for unpaid overtime. And so in California, the statute of limitations goes back three years. And this, this particular hygienist had been with her longer than that. And so because she had no time records, because she had no proof that, that her hygienist had taken a lunch, she had to pay, because if her hygienist started at, say, 8, started seeing patients at, at 8, let's say, and came in maybe 7.45, whatever she came in for morning huddle or whatever, she would leave at 5. So let's count the hours. 8, 9, 10, 11, 12, 1, 2, 3, 4, 5. She's worked nine hours. She's owed an hour of overtime every day. Yeah. And the dentist said, wait a minute. She took a lunch. Prove it. Right. And she couldn't prove it. Ooh. And so this poor dentist had to pay one hour of overtime for every day this hygienist worked going back three years. Yes. And in California, we have a lovely penalty called a lunch penalty. So if a person doesn't get their lunch or their breaks, you have to pay them an extra hour of pay. So she had not clocked out for lunch, so the dentist had to pay an extra hour of pay for every day she worked going back three years. It was a lot of money. Oh. And it was terrible because even though she brought her day sheets, even though she had other people say, no, this hygienist took lunches all the time, like the rest of us, and she didn't close at lunch, so she didn't have that advantage. But as you can see, it was a terrible experience. So for any of our doctors out there who's, who don't have their hygienist keeping time records, today's the day to start, even if they won't like it. Right. A lot, particularly in California, a lot of our clients have just changed hygienists to hourly employees so they they just have gotten away they've trans translated that per diem rate into an hourly rate and they just pay on an hourly basis and by the way there's another thing that i'll throw in here just to confuse people you can pay hygienists their production rate let's say their production rate's fifty dollars an hour if a patient doesn't show up and you want that hygienist to be calling people they're not producing you can pay a different, an alternative wage rate, which we call a non-production rate. And that non-production rate, let's say it's $20 an hour. You use that non-production rate for when they're doing calls, 
when they're going to staff meetings, when they're going to continuing education, whenever that hygienist is not producing, she's paid $20 an hour. And you can make her vacation paid if she has vacation at $20 an hour too. Hmm. In California, you can't do that with paid sick leave, however, but we're not going to go down that road. Okay. <laughs> it's a whole other road. But so anyway, that's kind of how you do it. And that's the sad part for people who pay on a per diem basis and don't have people keep time records. Okay. Um, I, I know that uh, where I go to, to the dentist, my own personal dentist, and, and maybe more, um, pay, they pay bonuses for, you know, production or, or collection when it, when it reaches a certain amount over the month or the year. How does that kind of figure into to everything you're talking about? Well, I think that dentists have have really put thought into coming up with incentives for their teams and goals and people like that that little pop of money if they get a bonus um, you know at the end of the month and they meet goals. It's really a team building thing, and so I'm really in favor of those, and they work. The problem is that if for the there most of our dental um, clients don't have a five day work week. I mean, I think probably the majority maybe have a four day work week. And if they're in other states, other than there are three states that pay overtime over eight hours a day: California, Nevada, and Alaska. But if you're in any one of the other states, most people are not going to even work long enough hours to have overtime be an is issue because you have to pay it over 40 hours in a work week. But for the for California and these other states, um, you have to take, so let, let's, let's use California as an example, because we do have California dentists that may be listening to this. If you have a, a goal and it's a formula, so everybody expects that if they meet the numbers that you've written down, they will get this bonus in the next month. If anybody has worked overtime, let's say in the month of May, you have you you have everybody working and they reach their goals. And so in the first payroll, let's say of June, you're going to pay them this bonus. You actually have to go back in California and add that bonus amount into the overtime if you've paid overtime. So it it is it's an annoying thing that makes paying incentives that are based on a formula that are expected as these are because they're based on a formula. If you meet the production goals or collection goals, you get this money. You have to go back and calculate it, recalculate it into anybody's overtime because it changes the overtime figure. So for all other states, everybody's eyes are rolling back in their heads about this time, I think, Stuart, because <laughs> it's so complicated. But if you have overtime issues, and particularly in California, let me know. I'll help you figure out how to do it. And I want to say something else um, about, about overtime and about wage rates. You can have different wage rates, and a number of our clients nationally have either they call it a non-production wage rate or they call it a continuing education 
wage rate. You can, the law allows you to pay different wage rates for different kinds of work. So if you, a lot of our dentists take their teams to um, different kinds of continuing ed classes all over the country and they involve flights, they involve hotel, they involve meals, they involve the cost of the courses and all of those things. All law, all wage and hour law says that if you make this trip a mandatory trip, that you have to pay wages on top of these costs. The costs are not mandated, but the wages might be. So this is where some of our clients have made use of the secondary wage rate and figuring it into the hours save themselves money. Mm. So can you get around that by saying that the trip is voluntary? Yes. If you put it in writing and you invite your team and you don't get anybody in trouble who doesn't want to go and you put that all in writing, then it you may consider it voluntary and you don't have to pay wages. Typically, dentists have paid wages for the hours that their staff would have worked. Mm -hmm. So let's say they have a schedule of Monday through Thursday. And on Wednesday, they're going to fly to San Antonio and they're going to go to this class that runs Thursday, Friday, Saturday, and then they're flying home or maybe even to an annual event, which has similar uh, days and hours. If it's mandatory and you want your team to go and it's important that you go as a team, then if you have this secondary wage rate, you figure that in and you have to pay overtime based on the combination of those rates. This is another eye roller. <laughs> so I've written an article about it. I've broken down how you calculate it. It's actually simpler than it sounds. And if anybody wants this article, it's called the CE article. So uh, they can send me an email and ask for it. I'll send it to them. It, and it also has forms that clients can use to tell their employees what they're paying for and what they're not paying for. So you don't have to pay employees you know, for, for free time, for example. So all of this is detailed. But I thought I would just throw that in there. Very good. <laughs> good. Yeah. Um, I know that there are uh, uh, point three, um, if you're ready to move on to point three sure. uh, with our, our associates, there's a lot of Crown Council doctors with associates who are, you know, uh, new to the practice or just coming out of dental school. But can you talk about um, for a minute all the, all the issues in relation to pain associates and how, how it should be taken care of? Sure. This is a this is a very important issue, and you're right. It comes up a lot on the email network. Associates are dentists. Associates, by definition, can fall under the professional exemption, and they can be exempt employees, exempt from keeping time records, exempt from overtime, as we've discussed. But you have to pay an associate on a salary basis, a guaranteed amount that is over the salary threshold. So come January, if you're in any of the other states that don't have their own individual state law, it's gonna be $35,568 a year. California, come 2020, if you have less than 25 employees, it's gonna be $49,920 a year. So what, what happens though is a lot of the tradition in dentistry is 
you treat an, uh, an associate kind of almost like a contractor. You pay them a percentage of production or collections, and that's it. And they don't get vacation. They don't get sick leave. They don't get paid for anything else. All they get is a percentage of production. And often that's a lot of money and they're happy. The problem with it is that they, if you do it that way, they are non-exempt employees. You only have two choices, exempt or non-exempt in all of wage and hour law. So if you don't pay them this flat salary as a baseline, they're non-exempt and they have to keep time records and they have to be paid overtime. And anyway, there's another issue with that. So I'll bring that up in a second. There was a case. I got this great phone call from a guy named um, David Sohn, S-O-H-N. He's a young attorney in San Francisco. And he called me up and he said, I think you'd be interested in hearing about this case that I just won. And I said, of course I would. So I went to lunch with him. And he represented an associate at Western Dental in San Francisco. And Western Dental hired Littler Mendelssohn. They are the premier employment attorneys in the world. They are an international company. And so they represented Western Dental and David Sohn won because he was representing an associate whose contention was that he was being treated like an exempt employee, but he was paid a percentage of collections. Mm. And that is not a salary. That fluctuates every pay period based on obviously production or collections, either one. And so Western Dental lost. The point is, so how do you fix this? And this is what I keep, I feel like this person over on the sidelines saying, excuse me, excuse me, I'm trying to save you, excuse me. So if you want this associate to be an exempt employee and not have to keep time records, then pay them the base salary. It's a guaranteed salary. It is not a draw against commissions. It's not subject to anything. It's a base salary. And the numbers that I just said apply. And if, you have, if you're in other states and you have other numbers, we can find out what they are. And you pay that as a base salary and then you pay the percentage of production or collections on top of that as a commission. So Dennis will say to me, well, that's all well and good, Barb, but what if we have an associate who only works two days a week? Can we prorate that base salary for those two days? And the answer is no. It's a threshold. It's the bottom. That's the least you can pay, even if they work one day or two days. That's the least you can pay them and have them be exempt. If they're exempt, you don't have anything else to worry about with timekeeping or overtime or any of those other issues, and then you pay the percentage on top of that. If you want them to be non-exempt, you have the choice to do that. You can pay them based on the hour, but they have to clock in, clock out for lunch, etc. So you, that's why it's important to understand that everybody is either exempt or non-exempt, and you have to make a conscious choice based on independent judgment, the duties test, and the salary threshold. And then you have to go down that path consistently. Mm. So, conscious decision. Very good. <laughs> <laughs> Very good. Now, um, 
a lot of what you talked about here today, I mean, especially this associate's pay should probably be reviewed or, um, I mean, even just connected with you. It, uh, did you've written an article or, or I know your website is full of stuff. Can our doctors get more information on stuff like this? Yes. I have written an article on associate pay Okay. and happy to send that happy to send the CE article to anybody. And also always happy to have somebody write, um, send me an email and just say, here's what I'm doing. What do I need to do? And there are ways, if you're doing this kind of all wrong, there's certainly ways to fix it. Mm -hmm. And they take planning. So particularly in California, don't just change your compensation structure willy-nilly because people who are not being paid overtime will say to themselves, hmm, should I have been paid overtime for the last five years? So you have to be able to answer, know how you're going to answer that question before they ask it. So yes. People can call 925-310-4824, and they can send an email to me at Barbara, B-A-R-B-A-R-A, at hradvisors.net, and I'm happy to, happy to help. I know you are, and that is so fun um, about our relationship is you really are happy to help, and I would, I mean, I want you in my corner, and I don't, I'm not even a a dentist. I just, uh, <laughs> I can't believe you know, uh, so much. I enjoy always speaking with you and sharing. And, um, if, if anyone uh, has questions for Barbara, I would recommend you reach out to her. Her information is on the crown council website as well as I'm going to, uh, give her number again. It's nine, two, five, three, one, zero, four, eight, two, four. And you can reach out to Barbara at, um, Barbara, a, is it, it's just Barbara, B-A-R-B-A-R-A at hradvisors.net. So, right. Very good. First name. Thank well, you, good. Barbara. Thank you. Thank you, Stuart. It's always a pleasure. It is a pleasure. I appreciate all you do for Crown Council members. Thank you. Thank you. You're welcome.